Please turn with me to the book of Luke. The book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. The sermon text this morning comes from Luke, chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. Following the reading of God's word, we will sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. The passage we just read is very difficult for many people. Demons, miracles, exorcisms. You don't expect me to believe this, do you, Pastor? Many people today take one of two broad roads whenever they read a passage like this. The first road, which many people sadly today have done, especially in the West, is to say that it's simply not true, that either part of Scripture or all of the Gospel or parts of Jesus' life as they are recorded in the Gospels are not true. That was the way of many people like Thomas Jefferson during the Enlightenment. But there's another road, and that road, I commend to you, is to say that it is true regardless of how challenging it might seem. We have good reason to believe that. It is true because, if you remember, Luke, in the opening of his gospel, in the prologue, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, says that he wrote an orderly account, that he examined the eyewitness testimony and wrote an account so that we would know for certain the things concerning Jesus. Therefore, 
everything that follows in his gospel is historically reliable and true. If you are to experience the life-changing power of the gospel, which I want for you, I want you to have the freedom and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to have the spiritual health that only he can bring. But if you are going to have that, you need to know the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, the one that Luke tells us about here in every single verse of his gospel. Here's what I want you to take away from this morning, that Jesus Christ is the great freedom bringer. He's the great healer, and he heals by the authority and power of his word. That word has authority in two broad realms that we're going to talk about today. The first realm of God's authority and power is the invisible world, the world of demons, the supernatural world. The second realm that he has authority and power over is the visible world, the world of diseases and fevers, the visible and the invisible. Let me give you first, before going into the invisible realm, the context. If you remember, Luke, through the first three chapters, has been painting a big picture for us about who Jesus is. Why does he spend so long on the birth of Jesus Christ? He does so because he wants you to know that Jesus did not share in the guilt of Adam's sin. He was supernaturally conceived. Why does Luke in chapter 3 give us the genealogy of Jesus? Isn't that a part that we often skip over? Why do you think he gave us that genealogy? It was to show us that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. He is the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. He is the last Adam. That genealogy is traced all the way back to the first Adam. Jesus comes as the last Adam to undo the curse of the fall. Right after that genealogy, why does Luke give us the wilderness temptations? To show us that where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus Christ sustained the temptations of the devil. He resisted the temptations of the devil. Under worse conditions, Adam had a garden. Jesus Christ endured the temptation in a wilderness under more stressful conditions. Luke also tells us that Jesus Christ is the man of the Spirit. He was conceived by the power of the Spirit. He was anointed and endowed by the power of the Spirit. He was driven out by the Spirit into the wilderness after receiving baptism in which the Spirit was empowering him. And now he comes to bring his kingdom with power and majesty to a dark world. In verse 43, Luke says, Jesus, through the mouth of Jesus, the kingdom of God, that I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That phrase, the kingdom of God, is, the first, is first used here in Luke and will be later used over 37 times. Jesus is bringing in the kingdom. Now, before examining that first realm, the, the kingdom in the invisible world, let me give you some context from other passages in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 11 talks about the spiritual violence in which the kingdom of God is going to come. It says in Matthew 11 verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence or is coming violently. 
1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, Paul says, The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It is therefore in the context of the coming of the kingdom that we have to understand these miraculous signs and wonders. Jesus Christ has authority over the realms of darkness. Verses 31 through 37, that's the first thing I want us to consider. Jesus comes to Capernaum, it's in Galilee. In verse 31, he begins to teach on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. Immediately, people recognize that he is a man of great authority and power. Immediately, they recognize it. But something very unusual happens. A man who is demon-possessed cries out. Now, that would have been unusual in their day. It would not have been the normal, time, normal thing. It brings up the question, why do we see so much heightened demonic activity in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels? It is because this is the crescendo of God's saving work. This is to fulfill His redemptive historical plan in the sending of His Son. And therefore, the powers of darkness know what's up, and they are trying to thwart God's plan in any way possible. It is not the usual times that we see here in the Gospels. This is the unusual time, the crescendo, the mountaintop of God's historical redemptive plan to bring salvation to His people. A man cries out, and what does he say? Have you come to destroy us? Verse 34, have you come to destroy us? Jesus does what no other prophet had done before. Other prophets had done signs. Other prophets had done miracles like Moses and Elijah and Elisha, but none of them had cast out demons. Jesus does. Jesus silences them from speaking. Why does he do that? The demons confess or profess, you might say, or identify who Jesus is in verse 34. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Verse 41, you are the Son of God. They know who Jesus is even before many of His own followers know who He is. So why does He rebuke them and silence them? Perhaps it's because Jesus knows that their plan is to thwart the purposes of God. They would say that he's in league with Satan. If people found out from demons that the Son of God was coming, they might think that Jesus was in league with them. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons, they might say, and Jesus knew this. I had a professor in graduate school who was a history scholar. He knew much about the Bible. He knew much about church history. And I thought that he might be a mentor and an advisor, but I found out through various sources of his reputation that he was not a follower of Christ, he was not a confessing Christian, and he lived a rather immoral lifestyle. I immediately realized that no matter what truth came out of his mouth, no matter what he might say about the Bible and Jesus and church history, I couldn't trust him to lead me to Christ. He was not worshiping and bowing down to Christ himself, and therefore, anything that he might say, even though it might be true, would not be motivated out of reverence and worship to Christ. 
And I exhort you, when you go out into the world and you hear people say things that might sound true, who is the source of this word about God? You need to know and examine, are they worshiping the Lord? Are they bowing to Christ? Or are they saying this for some other reason? Jesus silenced the demons because he knew he would not lead people to worship him. We are also told here that the word of God, even though it's a simple word, a small word, brings spiritual violence. In verse 35, be quiet, Jesus says, come out of him. He rebukes the demon and casts him out. Here's what Kent Hughes said about this. From this encounter, we know without a doubt that whenever the authority of Christ, the Son of God, is invoked in preaching or teaching, there will be a violent confrontation with the evil spirits who possess men's souls and ruin their lives. Satan wants to prevent you and I and others from hearing God's Word preached, from understanding Christ's Word. That's his tactic. And it is an act of war to bring out the Bible and to preach and teach what Jesus Christ said. A man who knew this very clearly was Martin Luther. Martin Luther, more than any of the other reformers, in my opinion, in my readings, talked about the devil. It's one of the reasons I love Luther. He said, the devil fears the word of God. He can't bite it. It breaks his teeth. In that wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress, there's that verse, which you probably know well. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Don't we see that in this passage? It's just this one little word, be quiet, come out of him. And the demons are expelled. It's one of the hopes and prayers of pastors when they get up to preach is that we can't go through the entire word. We don't read all of Scripture in an hour or two. But the word, the word that we do read and preach, that little word we hope and pray would enter into someone's heart and cast out the darkness. One other thing we learned about Christ exercising his rule by his word over the invisible powers of darkness is this, that either people are in Christ or they are in Adam. I wish I could say there was a neutral playing field and that this world wasn't with devils filled and that this world was full of good and innocent people and that there were no powers of darkness seeking to destroy people and roaming about like a, a lion seeking someone to devour, but it's simply not true. Either people are in Adam or they are in Christ. Here's the hope that I get from that. I used to be so concerned that Maybe what I said to people when friends at school who did not know the Lord or did not confess Christ, I used to be so concerned that maybe it was something that I said that would prevent them or something that I did that would lead them to Christ. But the hope is this, that the power does not belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. 
It belongs to Christ. It belongs to the Word. And that in His time and in His way, He will expel the darkness. And we can pray for that. But you must know that the power doesn't belong to you. The second realm that we see Christ exerting His authority and power is the realm of the visible world in verses 38 through 44. He leaves the synagogue. He goes to the home of Simon, who would later be called Peter. His mother-in-law has a high fever. And in verse 39, Jesus bends over her and rebukes the fever, and it leaves her. This is not a spectacular miracle, but it is a miracle. What I want you to see is what Simon Simon's mother-in-law does afterwards. What does she do? Verse 39, she gets up at once and begins to wait on them. This is a sign of anyone who claims to be, have experienced some sort of miracle. The way you can know if it's genuine is, do they wait and serve Christ? That's the question. They can claim all sorts of things that they've experienced, but in their life, are they waiting upon Christ? Are they serving Christ? If they've truly been touched by the hand of God, they will wait upon Him. They will serve Him. That's the question. Another thing that we see is that we must submit to the authority of God's Word. Even though there are all kinds of miracles happening in this passage, especially in verses uh, 41, demons are coming out of people, verse 40 People are bringing various sicknesses to Jesus, and He's laying their hands on each one. How are we to think about these miracles? I want you to consider that it comes in the context of the preaching of God's Word. This account was opened up in verse 31 when Jesus was in the synagogue preaching on the Sabbath day, and it ends in verse 43 and 44. People come to him and they want him to stay, but in verse 43 he says, what? I must go perform miraculous signs and wonders in Bethlehem too, or I must go and drive out demons in other regions as well. No, he says, I must go and preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, because that is why I was sent. The miracles and the signs were subsidiary to the larger reason that he was sent, the proclamation of God's Word. That's the context in which this comes. Interestingly enough, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says that we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed than what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you were to ask Peter, would you have signs and miracles or wonders, or would you rather have Scripture? Peter would say, we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed, greater than signs and miracles and wonders. Here's what Phil Riken has said concerning this passage. How did Jesus cast out demons and heal the sick? He did it by the word of God. And for what purpose? So people would know that his word was true. People want to turn Jesus into some kind of wonder worker or entertainment act or insurance policy. They want something other than what Jesus has to offer, 
physical healing or happy feelings or financial prosperity. These are all blessings that God can give, but His greatest blessing is salvation through His gospel word, the good news of eternal life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He continues, this is why the church's first priority is to preach the gospel. Today, many people do the same thing with the church that they do want or they do with Jesus. They turn it into something other than what God has called it to be. They turn it into an entertainment venue or a social project, anything and everything other than what it is intended to be, a community that is gathered to hear God's word. Amen. That's the point. The point is that we are a community that listens to, submits to, and reverences the Word of God. That's one of the great things we can learn from this passage. But here's another thing that we learn about Jesus exercising His rule over the visible world. He didn't do it without prayer. Where do I get that? I think it's implied in verse 42. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. Why do you think he went to a solitary place? Perhaps his human nature, having just uh, exercised demons through the authority of his word, his human nature probably was certainly fatigued and tired. When the powers of darkness are arrayed against you, you are to pray. You are to go to a desolate place, find a time to cultivate a relationship with God's and His Word, through His Word, praying to Him. That's the way that we fight the powers of darkness. We fight the powers with the weapons that God has given to us, all the weapons listed in Ephesians chapter 6. The helmet of salvation, the, the sword of the Spirit, the belt of truth, and yes, prayer is also mentioned there as well. Finally, you must keep your eyes on the cross. It's not so much said here as it is implied. What are these demons trying to prevent Jesus from doing? What are they crying out about? They know who he is. They want to prevent him from going to the cross. That was the point of the wilderness temptations, that that Jesus would be led up to a high place and would be tempted with all the kingdoms of the world if he just bowed down to worship Satan, if he just derailed himself from the Father's plan. When Peter knows that Jesus Christ is going to Jerusalem and there's a chance that he will die, don't go. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. I used to think that that was an overstatement. Jesus, you're calling Peter Satan? Really? I used to think that that was quite a, quite a strong word for Peter. But I don't think in context that that's really an overstatement. Satan can use the words of even our dearest loved ones to divert us. And particularly, what was true of Jesus, to divert Jesus from his Father's plan. Here's the thing that God is wanting for you. He wants you to listen to the preaching of God's Word. These are the things that Satan does not want for you. He does not want you to keep your eyes on the cross. He does not want you to feed on God's Word every day. 
He does not want you to pray to God in desolate places. He does not want you, especially in your sufferings and temptation, to take up your cross and to follow Him. But here's how you can do it. We know that the battle does not belong to us. It's not our strength and our power that is going to defeat Satan and his minions. Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, defeated Satan for us. Ironically, that is the last thing that Satan wanted was the cross, and yet, ironically, everyone around Jesus wanted it. The the Jews and the high priest and many of the Romans, they were wanting Jesus to be crucified. Ironically, that was not what Satan wanted because Satan knew that the cross was a great victory for God and for the forces of light. Are you going to let Satan have his way with you? Are you going to turn aside from following Jesus Christ and taking up your cross and following him? If you want to fight, you can know that there will be victory, but not, throughout, not without the Spirit's work in your life. If the Spirit works in your life through the reading of God's Word and through prayer, you can know that you can stand against temptation too. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead indwells you. The same strength and power that Jesus was depending on is available to you. Will you take it? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given us a word, a prophetic word more fully confirmed than even the great signs and miracles that were done on the Mount of Transfiguration. We acknowledge to you that there are demons in this world. There is a supernatural world that is filled with evil and darkness, and Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone like us to devour. But we thank you that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We thank you for the spirit of the risen Christ that indwells believers and that protects them from Satan's attacks. We thank you that when Christ Jesus was on earth, that he cast out demons, that he resisted temptation, and he went to the cross to fulfill your plan for the salvation of your people. We thank you that there on the cross was nailed my sin and the guilt that I deserve. We praise you that he is the second and last Adam who has triumphed over death and will bring us with him. May this comfort us and empower us in our time of darkness and despair that we too would share in the hope and comfort that Christ had when he walked on earth by your spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.